taken from John 15, verses 1 to 17, and can be found on page 1083 of the Church Bible. That's John 15, verses 1 to 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you have that uh, open in front of you? If in your church Bibles, it's on page 1083. And just to say the outline of the sermon is on the purple sheet on the back, so you can follow the points there. I'm going to make a confession to you, and I hope you won't think the worse of me. I am a news junkie. I... uh, on our honeymoon, uh, which was in Vienna. Uh, The day didn't really start until the Times newspaper had been flown in and I could read it over the hot chocolate in Demerel or wherever it was. However, although I am a news junkie, I have to say that these last few weeks, even months, I've hardly dared to turn on the news. It is so, so grim. And we get the tragedies instantly the flyover collapsing in Calcutta, as Lucy has already uh, prayed to the mothers and children, many of them Christians celebrating Easter, killed and injured by a bomb in Lahore at a playground, and a Muslim shopkeeper who wishes his Christian customers a happy Easter is murdered. We might be tempted to despair until we turn to the Bible. There we discover it has ever been thus. But if you've been following our series on Revelation, which we began in the autumn and will finish in May, you will know that there is no need to despair. For one day, God is going to deal with all that is evil, and there is truly much evil, and there is hope and there is joy for all who put their trust in the risen Lord Jesus. 
And as we see wonderfully in Revelation 21, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God's reign will be evident to all, and there will be no more tears or crying or pain or death. It's in that context that we consider the last of the I am sayings of Jesus when Jesus said here in John 15, I am the true vine. For in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 5, God's people were described as a vineyard which sadly had failed to produce good grapes. And so here Jesus speaks of himself as the true vine with his father as the gardener. His followers, his disciples, are the branches attached to the vine, and these branches would produce good fruit, fruit that would last and will bring glory to God. But faced with all that is wrong in the world, is there anything you and I can do? Jesus here teaches that there is indeed. His way is for his followers to live lives that count to live lives that count. Lives that can individually reach the furthest corners of the world, lives that can bring light and hope where there was only darkness and despair. How are we to live so that we make a difference? How are we to live a life that really counts? Here's my first point. We will live a life that counts if we are open to God's word. If we are open to God's word. Look at verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus is speaking to those who have already listened to him, who have been changed by what they have heard. And as branches, they have been united to Christ, the vine. Here is how the first bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, described it. The union between the branch of a vine and the main stem is the closest that can be conceived. It's the whole secret of the branch's life, strength, vigor, beauty, and fertility. Separate fr separate from the parent stem, it has no life of its own. The union between Christ and the believers is just as close and just as real. In themselves, believers have no life or strength or spiritual power. They are what they are and feel what they feel and do what they do because they draw out of Jesus a continual supply of grace, help, and ability. But here is the point about living a life that counts. We have a choice. We have a choice as to whether our lives as Christians will be fruitful or unfruitful. And that will depend on how closely we have been listening and responding to Jesus' teaching and his word. In one of his letters, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uses a different picture to illustrate this truth. In 1 Corinthians 3, he speaks about how Christians build their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We then have a choice as to how we build on that foundation, and the quality of our work will be revealed on the last day when Christ comes again. Will we have built gold, silver, and precious stones which will last, or will we have built wood, hay, or straw? Will God see a life of half-hearted commitment to him, or will he see a life spent serving him with all our being? God himself will show us 
the eternal significance of our work on earth. And so as Paul says in that passage from Corinthians, it will be revealed with fire, and if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If you want to ensure that you are building gold, silver, or precious stones, be open to God's word. Be open to God's word. So I ask you, as I ask myself, are you, am I really open to God's word? Do you want to learn from him? Do you want to be changed by him? Immerse yourself in God's word through sermons, through home group Bible study, through our own personal times with him. There is no shortcut to regular Bible reading, whether it's using a paper Bible, your iPhone, your iPad, your smartphone. I've just been given a smartphone by my family. It has a Bible app on it. I cannot escape. You cannot say there is a shortage of Bibles. There is a shortage of readers. The Bible Society's most horrifying statistic is that regular churchgoers do not read the Bible. Because, of course, as we read the Bible, God talks to us. He shows us as we are. He speaks to us. And we can respond, we can obey to what he reveals, even at times if it's hard to accept, because we know that he cares about us. He wants the very best for us. And here's a wonderful promise for the person who is open. From Psalm 1, blessed is the man or woman whose delight is in the law, the word of the Lord, who meditates on his Lord day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. It's good for you. It's good for your spiritual health. It's good for your soul. It's my practice on Sunday mornings always to read a, a psalm. And my psalm this morning was Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. Do you know how many times the psalmist says his love endures forever? 26 times. So as I came to church, um, I, as you can see, I'm on my own this Sunday. I've been bereft of Tim and of John. The psalm was a mighty encouragement. His love endures forever in spite of the news, in spite of the amazing inhumanity to man, of man to man. In the 21st century, medieval barbarity, his love endures forever. Here's my second point. We will live a life that counts if we remain in Christ, if we remain in Christ. Look at verse 4. Remain in me, I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. To remain in Christ is to have a relationship of continuing dependence on Christ through the Holy Spirit. Jesus starkly sets out the alternative. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. 
apart from me, you can do nothing. Yes, of course, you can do a lot. You can rush around with work, home, family. But if that's all you do, you will achieve nothing of eternal value, nothing of lasting value, nothing for the kingdom. And it's possible even to do church work apart from Christ. In the north, they have a wonderful saying. If you say uh, so-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, she's a great church worker. It means she rushes around doing lots of things. But the question is, is she remaining in Christ? It's possible to do it in your own strength, to get involved in activities God never meant you to be involved in, however good they may be. And this means you'll expend a great deal of energy in vain. And the psalmist in Psalm 127 puts it this way, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. A fruitful life comes from remaining in Christ. My recent illness has made me more determined to prioritize my time for what God wants me to do. What are his priorities for me in my ministry here? Uh, The big thing, Michael, welcome. The big thing is to learn to say no, even to good things. You see, the great thing is that God has been very generous. We all have the same amount of time, whether you're rich or poor. You have 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And we are all busy people. The danger is in that the words of a well-known saying, the urgent takes priority over the important. Nothing is more important than to discover God's priorities for our time and talents. And the only way to do that is to remain in him, to be dependent on him, to stick close to him, as close as a branch to a vine. Here's my third point. If our lives are to count, we must be prepared for God to prune us. We must be prepared for God to prune us. Look at verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now, I have to write a little footnote here for those of you who are not gardeners. In Jesus' day, and I guess still today, vines were pruned twice a year. In spring, the plants were reduced and shaped to reduce the number of possible grapes so that the remaining fruit would be of top quality. They were also pruned in autumn, after the harvest, to remove branches that had borne no fruit. The cuttings were gathered and burnt. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If a professing follower of Jesus shows none of the fruit of being a believer, for example, a holy life, a desire to do what God requires, Then, as one commentator put it, the so-called believer becomes a dead branch, unable to bear fruit. There is no permanent place for him in the fellowship of the redeemed. And, of course, Judas Iscariot is one such example. He looked like one, but actually he wasn't. 
The Bible teaches that no one can lose their salvation. Once we're united to Christ, we are always united to him. Once you are in Jesus' words, just a reminder, they were Jesus' words, born again or born spiritually, you cannot be unborn. But the Bible does teach that there will be those who outwardly appear to be Christians and yet are not in reality. It is they who fall away. Back to the spring pruning. The spring pruning is different. It has a benevolent purpose. Verse 2, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And again, a commentator writes, there is dead wood, sins of pride, independence, selfishness, impatience, covetousness, all dead wood that needs to be cut away from our lives if we are to become more Christ-like. To encourage us, the writer to the Hebrews highlights the point that it's because God loves us that he disciplines us. It's all for our good. And there is more encouragement in verse 2 of John 15. As an American preacher, John Piper, stated in a conference talk, God is in control. Jesus wants us to know, said Piper, his father governs these experiences. Persecution, hardship, and calamity do not come to the branches willy-nilly. They are not aimless or random. They are the work of the vine dresser, and they have a purpose, namely, more fruit. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. There's a wonderful purpose behind the pruning. Now, even as I say that, I know this can be very difficult to accept if you are going through a hard time. But it is often in those moments that we learn most from God. One lesson I value from my recent illness was a growing understanding that even as I faced uncertainty about the future, there is nothing uncertain about God. In particular, his gospel and his plan of salvation remain true. He never changes. Even if I felt out of control, God was and remains in control. His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. And so I left hospital not only determined to prioritize my time, as I mentioned earlier, but also not to sweat the small stuff, not to allow the unimportant to dominate my life. And there's an awful lot of it. The writer to the Hebrews is realistic. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Which of us would not want to be more fruitful for God? There's a wonderful purpose behind the pruning. What does a life that counts look like? What does a life that counts look like? In a life that counts, firstly, prayer is answered. Look at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Now, God is not giving us an open checkbook. The New Testament lays down guidelines about prayer, and I'm just going to mention very briefly three. James, in chapter 5 of his letter, tells us we are to pray in faith, believing God is able to do what we ask. 
Secondly, in John 14 and 16, John, Jesus tells us we must pray in his name. This means we must not pray for things of which we know Jesus would disapprove. For example, vengeance on our enemies when Jesus calls us to forgive them. Isn't that challenging in the 21st century? And then thirdly, we should pray, your will be done. Jesus himself prayed this in the Garden of Gethsemane, and if he prayed it, we can pray it and should pray it, because he deliberately put his future into the Father's hands. Secondly, in a life that counts, glory goes to God. Look at verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. The lives of fruitful Christians reflect the character of God. Through them, people catch glimpses of what God is truly like, not as they've been told he is like through the media. Here is the frightening thing. God will discover something of what God is like. People will discover what, something of what God is like through you. You are God's advertisements. They will do window shopping. I'm very keen on my wife, Trisha, doing window shopping. It means she doesn't spend any money, but it means you're looking from the outside and deciding. People window shop. And as they look at you and me, they decide what they think about God. And there is something immensely attractive about a life that reflects Jesus. People are drawn to him. And isn't that how most of us became Christians? We saw someone who lived in such a way that we wanted what they had. We recognized something different about them. We wanted to meet the one they followed. They pointed us to him. They were like signposts. Never mind what the media tells you about God and the church and all the rest of it, you know X, who you also know is a follower of Jesus, and they are immensely attractive. What have they got? And as we point to him, of course, the glory goes to him because we're pointing away from ourselves to the living God. And we say, no, no, it's not us. It's him. Thirdly, in a life that counts, there is a lasting legacy. Why did the pharaohs build the pyramids? They wanted a lasting legacy. Well, impressive to a point. And it's something that everyone wants. The CEO of your greatest company will start off and saying, I want to leave a legacy. Trisha and I caught up with the West Wing, and it's all about the legacy of the president. I think that's happening now. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And here is a most wonderful verse in the Bible. I wonder if you spotted it. Jesus tells us that we did not choose him contrary to what we thought, but he chose us. He so arranged people and circumstances that we would be in a place to hear his voice, turn to him, and receive his abundant life. And for some of us who did not grow up in Christian homes, that is quite a remarkable thing indeed. 
And Jesus says he has plans and purposes for us, giving us a value and a significance way beyond anything our natural gifts would allow. What is the fruit that lasts? Isn't it being allowed to have a part in the growth of his eternal kingdom, such as being used to bring people into relationship with him? Uh, Trisha and I, after services, particularly the morning, we spend all our time introducing people. Do you know so-and-so? Have you met so-and-so? Well, that's what we're doing as Christians. We're introducing people to Jesus. Being salt and light wherever our front line is at work. Many of you are in challenging front lines. Seeing that the name of Christ is once again honored in the public life of our nation. How has it come about? I read in the Spectator that people like to attack people with a a real Christian faith. How have we got to that when our foundations are Judeo-Christian? Supporting the work of ministries like our St. Michael's mission partners all over the world, the Parkers working in Sudan, at great sacrifice and cost. And there's much more. For the life that counts is a life of love, first for God, then for one another, verse 12. It's a life of joy, verse 11. Not the joy that depends on all going well, but the joy that comes from knowing that our life is safe with him. It's a life of friendship. Friendship with Jesus, verse 15, whom we try to obey, verse 14. Because that is, above all else, what we want to do. Let me finish by quoting again from John Piper. In that conference address, he spoke about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission in the 19th century, and he was responsible for leading hundreds of missionaries into the interior of China. And his son wrote of his father, here was a man, almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Christ, his reason for peace, his power to calm. Dwelling in Christ, he drew upon his very being and resources. I can find no words to describe it save the scriptural expression, in God. He was in God all the time and God in him. It was that true abiding, remaining of John 15. Some years ago, we had a speaker at our house party, Mr. and Mrs. Goldsmith, and uh, Mrs. Goldsmith, I can't remember her Christian name, Elizabeth Goldsmith. Uh, Her father was a missionary doctor in China. She was born there, and uh, she had a babysitter, Chinese babysitter. And she told us this story. This is a first-hand story. Of course, she wasn't allowed to go back to China for many years, but comparatively recently, she went back. She went back to the place where her father, as a medical missionary, had started one small Bible study group. That's all he managed to do. And she sought out her babysitter. Her babysitter, having heard the gospel, is now leading a church of hundreds of people. What a legacy. And what a legacy as we think of the church in China today. By all accounts, it is flourishing. Yes, there are issues. But it started with lives that counted. What a life, what a legacy. May God grant to you and me as we also abide, remain in the true vine, come what may in these days.
because the reality of the transforming power of God's love starts here. Starts with me and with you. Let's pray.